0: We've been looking at this new covenant. We've been looking at this high priesthood of Christ for several weeks. We've been in chapter seven, finishing that last week. We're going to go into chapter eight this morning. We've been looking at, in, in chapter seven, remember we looked at this great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, this guy that wanders in out of nowhere and shows up and Abraham ties to him and, and, and he blesses Abraham and all. And, and, and then we, we got into looking at Last week, at at the fact that this high priest after the order of Melchizedek is not somebody that was called according to his lineage. He wasn't appointed a high priest because of his lineage. We saw that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and that the priestly line was from Levi, and and the people were scratching their heads saying, how can this be? And, And the writer says, no, it wasn't on the basis of lineage. It was on the basis of God making, God swearing an oath. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. uh, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, will not change his mind. You are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking prophetically. David, King David, when he wrote that, would have no point of reference. That he was speaking prophetically about the coming Christ that would come. And that this Jesus that came onto the scene would be the one who would fulfill what he talks about in Psalm 110. And he's reaching back all the way to Genesis 14. We looked at that. We looked at the fact that not only is the high priest not called after Levi, but he's called after God's own oath. But we looked at the fact that the the high priest in the old covenant, that because they were called according to their lineage, there was no way that they could be weighed on on the basis of their own personal character. We looked at Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and what creepy guys they were. And, and, And we looked at the fact that that it didn't count in the old covenant it didn't it, it didn't weigh in someone's character and and the writer launches into it and he goes into the character of Jesus and he talks about uh, the just the purity the perfection that he brings and we've looked at the fact that this old covenant was broken it, it didn't work. It was there, but it was always intended to be replaced. It was never intended to be the permanent way that man could relate to God because it only offered partial relationship. You could have your sins covered, but never eliminated. You could never come into God's presence. It was separated. That, that veil in the temple, that veil in the tabernacle was there for a purpose, and it was to keep man out. Of the presence of God, because sin was never dealt with. And, and so as we look at this this morning, we're going to see, we, remember we talked about Jesus was, he was the surety last week. He was the, the, the guarantee that he not only initiates this covenant, but he then says, I'm going to co-sign on it. I'm going to make sure that it comes about. And, and so we see there that what the writer's doing, he's talking about this Jesus, how he can be both the initiator, the testator, and the, the one who guarantees, the guarantor. If you look at that on a contract or on a last will and testament, that that's sort of the language is being used. This is a legal thing that the writer is putting out. He's saying, look, you can't get there from here on the basis of law. You have to get there on the basis of grace. And and this new covenant being on the basis of God's grace being poured out for man is the only way to relate to God. You can't go back. So don't think about going back. And they were thinking about going back. This book was written, this letter was written sometime around 60 to 64 uh, just a few years before the utter demol- de- demolition of, of Jerusalem when the Temple Mount would be swept clean. We'll talk about that as we go this morning. And so he's really wanted to, these people to understand he's gone through the systematic argument of putting forth one thing in the priesthood, one thing in the law after another, and then saying, look, Jesus is better. He's better. How come he's better? Because he holds up both ends. He holds up God's end, and he holds up man's end. There was no way for the law to do that. The law told people how to live, but it never offered the power to do so. And so we're going to pick this up. We're going to look through, uh, I I hope to cover, haha, in a half hour. um, I hope to cover the whole chapter this morning. Uh, chapter 8 in Hebrews, and we're going to look at the first six verses, and we're going to go through and pull some things out of that, and then we'll look at verses 7 through 13 and wrap it up. So I don't have any hope in doing that. I better get busy. Um, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed, ordained, uh, to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See to it that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we see in verse 1, he says, Now the mo- this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest uh, that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So, what he's saying is, is to sum up, he's, as I mentioned, he's going through this elaborate point by point, And I don't mean argument like he's arguing with somebody, but he's, he's putting forth an argument for the new covenant and, and he's going through point by point. And he's saying, okay, let me summarize the things I've been saying. And he's going to summarize the things that he's already put forth, but then he's going to add some things on here in chapter eight that are really fascinating. So, stay tuned i'm going to move fast as we go through here uh and just understand the the writer's being methodical he's summarizing and he's going to finish his point but he's going to continue with the sort of this logical progression that he's been using so when he talks about he said he has been he is seated he sat down uh in verse one and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens interesting why is jesus sitting Because his work is finished. If you look in the temple and the tabernacle, and you see all the elaborate instructions for their construct, for the construction of the tabernacle back in the Old Testament, and you look in the temple in the New Testament, there's one thing that's conspicuously absent. There are no chairs. There's no place to sit. Why? Because the work was never done. It was perpetual. Remember, we've talked about that. Hundreds, thousands of animals being slaughtered every day. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. Every day, the blood would flow. And when Jesus did his sacrifice, when he offered himself up, as we saw in chapter 7, it was done. There is no more to telestize what he said from the cross. That means literally, it is finished, and it was finished. The work of atonement for sin, the work of redemption of man, purchasing man as his own purchased possession was finished. And so at being finished, he sat down at the right hand of the father. Now, and that would be the place of authority. Understand in in that culture, the the king sat here and whoever was at the right hand, he had great power. He had great authority. And and the picture there is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father, co-equal, but also understanding that each has their own place. Three persons, one essence, not going to get into the whole Trinity thing right now. And you won't, figure it out if you do let me know but but truly he sat down at the right hand of the throne of god because his work was complete and that's the point the writer's bringing and 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 so in ephesians chapter one there's an interesting passage there uh verses 13 and 14 it says in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation that's what we're talking about here In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The promises of God. He was the promised one. He was the down payment on this contract, on this covenant. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit... Coming into play here, the writer doesn't specifically call out the Holy Spirit in the passage we're looking at this morning, but he already has and he will again. We see that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring these truths home. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, he said that he will, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and that he will lead you into all truth and that he'll bear witness of me, the threefold work of the Holy Spirit. And so, The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, past tense, we've been purchased, to the praise of his glory. So when he says he's seated at the right hand, again, every place you look in the New Testament that shows Jesus in heaven, he's sitting down except one place. Anybody know where that is? Acts chapter 7. When Stephen, the first martyr in the church, when he was stoned... And, and the scene shifts from him basically asking God to forgive these people as he died, as the as this guy Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, the great champion of the New Testament, was standing there holding the cloaks of the guys with the rocks. It says that as Peter gave up the ghost, as he appeared in heaven, Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. I believe that that was a sign of great respect And as Peter arrived in heaven, that Jesus stood up to welcome him in. It wasn't about work. It was about honor. Every other place, folks, Jesus is sitting down. He completed the work at Calvary. That's it. It was done. And now what the writer's wanting to do is to let these people know, look, this high priest, he's sitting down. He's resting. He's done. And that's the point there. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 10, we see, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He brings that home a couple more times in this book. So we look at this and we struggle because we're in process, aren't we? We, you know, I look at things in my own life, as far as Christ likeness, we have, you know, on our bulletins and you know, sort of a tagline that our church, is, church uses is, is learning to think like Jesus, learning to act like Jesus. That's a process. Yes, we've been declared clean. By His blood, we can come into His presence. We are holy in that sense and we are being made holy we are in process we are going through and and part of what the writer wants to bring to these people is look this is not about the exacting requirements of the law this is about this covenant of grace and, and as such You can be in a place where you know that you're not perfected in any way. I know that about me. You don't want to look at my life in the last week because I know the areas where I've failed. I know the things that I've said. I know the, the areas where the Holy Spirit's convicted me. But we can come into his presence based on his work based on the fact that he finished it. I don't have to. It's not up to me. That's going to be the point as we go through this that you'll see over and over again that the writer brings out. Uh Yeah, God calls us to walking by the Spirit. But folks, if you're one of those Christians that walks around with a little dark cloud over your head all the time thinking, I'm just never going to measure up, just remember that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And when he comes to me, he says, you know what, John, you're never going to measure up. You want to know what I do? I agree with him. You know what? I am never going to measure up. But I have a king that does. I have a Lord that did the work. He sat down. I don't have to strive. I want my life to be a reflection of Him and His work, His presence in my life, the work of the Holy Spirit, but I am not going to buy into the lie that says I have to be perfect when Jesus has already been the perfected one, that He has already perfected the covenant based on Him, not based on me. My relationship with him will never be on the basis of my performance. And yes, we're saved under good works and all of that. I'm not saying that, oh, great, now we can just go sin our hearts out and all that. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't get condemned by being human, by understanding that the reason the law condemned people is because people couldn't keep it. And with that being the case, don't get hung up in trying to fulfill some weird law in your life. It will produce condemnation, I guarantee and yet, we're children of the king. We come into his presence. He loves having a relationship with us, and he knows all about us. That's remarkable. Verse 2, he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Here the writer quotes Exodus chapter 25, and and, and he's talking about when, when Moses went, and he's up on the mountain with God, and God said, look, let me give you the exact instructions for how to build this place. I want to have a dwelling place. He said, I want to dwell with man. I want to have a place, Moses. Now, this is how I want you to do it. And he gave him very specific instructions, but he also told Moses, this is an earthly replica of something that is already in heaven. This is a shadow. We're going to talk about that a lot. This is a shadow that that points to a greater reality. Shadows in the Old Testament, that's what they do. We'll talk about that in a minute. But but truly, when he says, look, make everything according to the way that it was made on the mountain, that's what he's going to be talking about. So the high priest ministered in the earthly sanctuary, and they did that in the old law, in the old covenant. They ministered perpetually, as I mentioned. Once a year, the high priest would go in, and on the Day of Atonement, he'd atone for himself, First, and then for the sins of the people, Jesus ministers in the, in the heavenly sanctuary. It's not about, and we'll get into that here, where he doesn't, he never tried even to fulfill any of the priestly duties of the priesthood on earth. He knew it was failed. He knew that it was ineffective. It couldn't take away sin. In when he talks about this he says a minister of the true tabernacle which is the lord directed it reminds me of john chapter 1 where we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and then dropping down to verse 14 of chapter 1 in john it says "And the word became flesh jesus himself that he became flesh and he tabernacled among us he dwelt among us and I can't help but wonder if, is there some type of a a reference there to the person of Christ himself, not just the heavenly sanctuary? I don't know. But the point is, the earthly sanctuary is a shadow. It is not, it's it's not the end of the, the show there. It was a shadow. It pointed to the greater reality, the necessity of a greater reality for a heavenly sanctuary that our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek could minister to us from there. That was the point. Now about shadows, understand something about shadows. They don't have any substance, do they? A shadow. It again. It, it's a it's this thing. If I'm standing in the sun, let's say I'm standing in the sun with my wife, and and you know we're having a moment. You know, maybe stand in some beautiful place, and and I, I think I want to kiss my wife. So. If we're standing there and, and I turn to her and, and, you know, kind of start moving in. You know, you know, you move in for the... And, and, Yeah, you guys know. Anyway, and and all of a sudden I, I kind of veer away and I drop down onto the ground and I kiss her shadow in the approximate location of her mouth. What's going to happen? Well, number one, she's going to think I've totally lost it. But some days I have. But number two, I'm going to have a mouthful of dirt. It's you can only go so far, and I'm 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 reaching here with this illustration, guys. But but truly, you got to understand it's not about the shadow; it's the greater reality that the shadow represents. Because the shadow only represents what it is that casts the shadow. And when the writer talks about shadows and copies here in Hebrews eight, he's talking about what on earth would you go back to the shadow for? It would be as silly as. Me trying to climb the shadow of a tree by getting down on the ground and squirming around trying to grab branches—it's not going to work. And so, uh, it, it's, there's a greater—you got to always, when you look at these shadows in the Old Testament, you got to always what it should do is prompt you to look for the greater reality, because that's what they were for. The tabernacle was a shadow. There's a greater reality. And the writer's saying, you know what that greater reality is? It's the ministry in heaven. It's the place in heaven where the high priest, the real high priest, the earthly high priest was a shadow. The fulfillment? Jesus himself ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. That's the point. So, essentially, why would we want to follow a shadow? That's the point. Why, there's nothing there. It's not substantial. There's, it's, it's an illusion. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that one also has something to offer. How about his own life? These guys, again, perpetually offering gifts and sacrifices, and he offered himself up. We see that in chapter 7, verse 27. So, looking at this, this covenant that Jesus brings, this high priesthood that he represents, there's no animals, but one human. They, he's not making sacrifices often, but once, one time, once for all. The sacrifices were not to cover sins, but to eliminate sins, to forgive sins. So as we look at this priesthood, as we look at what he has to offer, what Jesus offers in this heavenly uh, sanctuary, is He offered Himself once for all, but He continues to minister because He makes intercession for us. We looked at that last week. Verse 4, For if He were here on earth, He would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts and sacrifices according to the law, or the gifts according to the law. So, what the the priesthood had been reduced to, it, it was never God's intention. But in Jesus' day, it had been reduced to a sanctimonious ritual, uh, where these guys were, you know, they were like above everybody else, really puffed up in themselves, and 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 they went through these rituals that were essentially meaningless. If Jesus were able to be a high priest, and he wasn't from the tribe, but he wouldn't participate. He wasn't about that. He was from the the order of Melchizedek. and so he he would not be a priest uh because again the priesthood was a, a shadow it was a reflection of the priesthood the perfect priesthood that he would bring um he didn't qualify according to the law. He wasn't from the order of Levi, and he never offered anything in the temple. He didn't wear the priestly vestments. You remember the high priest? He had a turban. He had he had a tunic, and then he had a robe, and then he had this breastplate with 12 stones on it because he was to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what the stones represented and all. Jesus didn't wear any of that. Uh, but as we looked at in John one fourteen, he tabernacled among men that he dwelt with man. He never was above man, even though he his rightful place is high above man. He came and he ministered. He he dined with sinners. He was with everyday people in everyday situations. And carrying out his priesthood, that's where he does his work. It wasn't about now so the advantage there is let's say that you are walking along, you're in Israel and and you need to get with the high priest. And, and you see even Aaron, the, the greatest high priest, you're walking along you say, Aaron, I, I need some priestly duties. I got to have, you know, I need some prayer. I need to sacrifice. And Aaron's just, he's just out doing his thing. Maybe he's on his way to the grocery store. I don't know. But, all right, they didn't have supermarkets, but, okay, work with me on this. Uh, so, but he's out there and he can do absolutely nothing for you He's not in the temple. He's not in the sanctuary. He's not there at the altar with the knife and the animal. He doesn't have his priestly clothing on. And he essentially says, you know what? Come and see me later. I can't do a thing for you. There were limitations to the priestly work that he could do. It could only be carried out through the prescribed way that God had shown them. And so there was a huge limitation there. Contrast that to Jesus. He was always going up and praying for people. He was always going and, and 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 just loving people and and illustrating the principles, the the fuel that the kingdom of God runs on. He was accessible by the people. He wasn't above. He was there. He was there as a servant. And and I mean. In every way, contrasting this old covenant priesthood to the new one, we see that Jesus is infinitely better. He's infinitely more more approachable. He's not there to uh, stop God from killing man. He's there to bring man into relationship with God. A huge difference in the whole premise of the thing. It's important to remember that when this was written, the temple was still in operation. Um, I want to talk about something for a minute here. Think about what the people could see in the first century. And, you know, I remember being in Jerusalem and looking down. The temple is on Mount Moriah. It's the lowest mountain There, and everywhere you go around the city, you look down, and, and sometimes there, now there are buildings that are kind of blocking the Temple Mount part of it, but then there wouldn't have been high rises, there wouldn't have been big tall buildings, there would have been a lot of low buildings, and the temple would have been prominent. And so, think about, you're a first century Jew, you've forsaken Judaism, and yet, from just about any vantage point in the city, you can see what's going on with that temple the first thing you you'd see is the grandeur of the temple itself herod's temple was an absolute magnificent building it took 50 years to build 46 years by the when jesus dealt with they, they talked about that uh, in the gospel of john but it took years and years it was an engineering marvel it was an architectural wonder and here anywhere you go in the city you look down and you see this beautiful marble covered structure you could see the smoke rising from the altar uh when the priests were doing the sacrifices there would always been a little pillar of smoke coming up and and you would look down you could see that you could see the priests and all their regalia all of their their pomp and 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 going about doing their priestly duties and on the feast days, you could see these processions that would go up and down the streets, and and they would and there'd be crowds of people that were following them, and and then you'd see it, you'd, you could look down and see the horns of the altar, these little pointy things on the corners, and they would tie up the sheep there, and and at, literally advertise, "We're getting ready to sacrifice. We're getting ready to kill the sheep to sacrifice for the sins of the people," and and so you you could hear the bleeding and all that. You could see this thing. And and then you would see the blood flowing as he got up, and he took that animal's life, and and the life, literally, as it came out of that animal, the blood would flow. And and then during the national feast, seven national feasts, four of them were required, and and people would come from all over the known world, all over the empire at that time, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would swell the population of the city. You would hear the crowds, you'd see this whole deal. And then... During the feast, they would, there would be this, this whole uh, interchange between the priests, priests and, and the people. And, and so you'd look down and you'd see these throngs of people and they would be involved with all the things that were going on. And, and you'd see the holy convocations where the priests would be carrying the pictures, for instance, on the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, carrying them up from the Pool of Siloam and 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 the people chanting, singing behind. So you could see all of that. You could also hear the noise from the crowds as they drew near. Huge mobs of people, crowds of people. And so it would be noisy in the city you 'd hear the bleeding of the sheeps and the goats at the altar as they were getting ready to be sacrificed you 'd hear the trumpets being blown the The priests were also the worship leaders, and they would blow these trumpets in in unison when they were getting ready to do particular things and This was all part of what was prescribed in the law and You could hear the trumpets and then you 'd look and you 'd see that what was going on and and the priests were would be leading the worship and they would do this this back and forth thing. The priest would sing something and then the people would sing in in response. It was a whole responsive deal. And thousands of people, again, you couldn't miss it. It would be this huge scene. You could hear them respond with shouts of praise. The point I want to make in this, folks, is let's say you're a first century Christian that had forsaken Judaism, you live in, in Jerusalem, and you see all of this stuff, you hear all of this stuff, the temple and all of the things going on would have been an over-the-top delight to the senses. But there's something wrong. What the writer to the Hebrews is asking them to believe is something from the Word of God over what they're embracing with their senses. He's saying, you know what? You've got all of this. And I'm telling you that God is done with this. All of it. And I'm asking you to, in the quietness of your heart, to embrace what God's word has to say. And to and to push that back. You might think, well, okay, Pastor John, that, that was back in the first century, and that's fine. I understand all of that. But you know what? We're in the same circumstance today. Do you know how much buys for our attention? Do you know how much is there to be a delight for our eyes? I think about smartphones. I don't have anybody in particular in mind. <laughs> but I, I think about, you know, it's like, I pack mine around. I'm like addicted to the thing. It's like... Oh, I just—that's a pretty website, you know. It's like, but, but I think about all the things that compete for our attention. We're in a media-rich environment. I mean, there's media for every—I use media. I mean, I, my career was in media, and—and and I'm not saying that that's wrong in itself, but I'm saying that things compete for our attention. And there's all this noise and there's all this stuff. I see churches that are out there and they're promoting an entertainment type of thing that it's like, no, that's not what's going on. It's about what's happening here. It's about what's happening in the human heart. It's about the new covenant being alive in me through the work of the Holy Spirit being expressed in my life. And I'm not saying I'm against good worship. I love the fact that our worship team has been working real hard at doing some things differently and... and and I love what I see and I love what I hear. But it can never replace devotion to Christ. And that's what we see. There is so much going on out there. Uh, my heart is so burdened for the church these days because the church is going after the glitz. It's going after the, the delight to the senses. And the writer to the, the, the Hebrew believers in the first century is saying, no, move away from that. Move away from that. It's not where God is. Understand, we deal with similar circumstances, folks. Verse 5, the priest served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, and Moses, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. It was a copy and a shadow which had failed. That's the point. All of the stuff that they saw, all the stuff that they heard was representing a failed system. It was representing religion. And we know that the new covenant is all about relationship, don't we? That's why Jesus wouldn't have participated in the earthly priesthood. It was about to expire. There were plenty of priests. They, they could serve the copy in the shadow, but only one could serve in the heavenly sanctuary. The point in this is it all pointed to the greater Reality. All of that stuff was a shadow. All of the noise, all of the visuals, it was all a shadow. And it pointed to the greater reality, the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So we have a better high priest, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, now a better ministry as he mediates a better covenant built on better promises. Do you think that maybe the, the writer is trying to tell us something here? Yeah, he's trying to very clearly illustrate to these people, don't think about going back to the old system. You need to understand that Jesus is better in every way. And, and again, as he is summarizing, he is systematically going back. He's tagging the bases he's already tagged. He's adding some new ones in. And now he's talking about better promises. He talks about a a better, uh, he's a mediator of a better covenant. If we look at Moses' mediation, Moses, Moses' mediation was essentially bringing two parties, Israel and God, together. Jesus' mediation of the better mediation, of the better covenant, he brings us into the very presence of God. It's not just bringing us together in a limited way. It's giving us full access. So the better promises go from legal to personal. They go from rocks to hearts. And we'll see here in Jeremiah 31 that he's going to launch into, he's talking about, I'm I'm going to not have my law written on tablets of stone anymore. It's going to be written on human hearts. In other words, this is very personal. And it's intended to be personal. The promises that we look at are the ones that see us through the darkest and most desperate times in our lives. These promises, they're ones that become alive to us through the Spirit of God, driving them into our hearts. They're promises of blessing and undeserved favor, grace, instead of promises to curse and to judge. Yeah, these are better promises. And they're promises not just for these people, they're promises for us. am going to read through verses 7 through 13, and um, I guarantee you I'm going to run long. So if you have some place to go, I, I totally understand. But... Um, I really want to wrap up this chapter. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what was becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the writer here goes and he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want you to note something here. Six times in this text, he says, I will. Speaking in in the first, God speaking through Jeremiah, through the writer of the Hebrews here, in the first person narrative, he says, I will six times. And there are some other first-person references. But when we look at this, we look at the Old Covenant. Remember, what was it founded on? Thou shalt and thou shalt not. You remember the Ten Commandments, the core, the Decalogue, the, the heart of the Old Covenant? Look at that compared to what the writer saying here. It's not you shall, you shall not. It's God saying, I will. Whole different approach. It's God saying in this, as we've been talking about, he's saying, you know what? I'm no longer going to have this requirement of you that you really can't keep, that you really can't attain, but I'm going to fill in both sides of the covenant. I'm going to put my covenant of grace forward and then I will do the work. He goes through all of these, every one of these I wills in this passage that's quoted in Jeremiah 31 are promises not only to Israel. this is a promise that was made to Israel initially but because we're the church because we're grafted in these promises are effective and, and they're effective in our lives as well. but he makes these promises saying, I will do this. I will be the one who oversees your side of the deal and you don't have to. that's what grace is all about guys. That's why it's so wonderful. That's why, you know what? I'll take this covenant any day of the week over what the previous one offered. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. It, now, this isn't hype. You know, I, I've been in the advertising business for, uh, almost shame to say it, almost 45 years. And, and I know what new and improved is, okay? It's a tagline. It's hype. And this is not new and improved, okay? And it's even in the Greek text that it's not new and improved. Uh There are two Greek words for the word new, and I'll just uh, bless your heart with this little piece of information. Um, the first is neos. And it, it, what it means is a copy of something old, but recently made. It's new, all right? The second Greek word is kainos, And it's something that is not only new in reference to time, but is truly new in its quality. Okay, he doesn't use the replica one. He says, no, this is something totally new. That kainos, that's the word new in the text here. He's being very clear. This isn't, this isn't new and improved. It's not about improving. You know what, guys, and a popular notion from the outside looking in of Christianity is God's making me a better person? No. That's self-help programs, and they don't work real well. (laughs) Because you still have a fallen nature at the end of it. But the point is, it's not about me getting being new and improved. It's about me dying to self and allowing him to emerge. It's about he initiating this new covenant, this new way of God relating to man, man relating to God, through the mediator, Jesus himself, who's not only a mediator, but he's a surety, he's a guarantor, he guarantees my end of the deal. That's the new. The old is do it and live. The, the new is it's all done. So therefore, love. That's it. It's summed up. The point here is the system of law doesn't work. Think about it. If it did, how many murders would we see? I saw another horrible mass shooting this weekend, Texas. Horrible. Seven people and counting, Dead. Um, how many robberies would there be? How many alcohol treatment centers would there need to be? How many drug rehab? How much of all of the sorrow and the heartache and the sin that we see all around us, if a system of law really worked, how much of that would be in existence? Not. It wouldn't because we can't keep it and we'll look at that it's it's not about that I, I used to do prison ministry and I would go into the the jail and I would tell these guys look you want to know the difference between you and me you got caught because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God I want to get into that seat right next to you yeah If you give your life to Christ, the guards aren't going to pat you on the head and tell you how wonderful you are and go and lock the door because we reap what we've sown. That's different. But the point is, is that we all are in this boat together and we are all utterly reliant upon the grace of God. And if we try to make it on the basis of our merit, we're going to, not only do we fail, we insult the work of the cross. It's an insult to grace to say, well, I'm making it based on what a good person I am. No, you are saying that the cross, essentially you're saying that the cross isn't necessary, it's about me. How foolish is that? Verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, he's quoting Jeremiah 31, and, you know, I'm, I'm gonna reconsider, we're out of time, I, I really wanna finish this up, but, uh, we'll just finish next week and go into chapter um, uh, chapter nine. I, I I was I was dedicated towards finishing it, but I've still got like twelve pages in notes, so um, <laughs> I'm not going to keep you here forever. I hardly ever miss on that. I usually it's like I know you guys will allow me to run over a little, but I don't want anybody walking out. So, um, interesting. What's happening in Jeremiah 31? I'll just tell you a little bit. Ahead of time, give you something to chew on. Uh, go back and read it yourself. It's chapter thirty-one, verses thirty-one to thirty-four, and and he's going to launch on this passage. It's it's a beautiful passage, prophetic passage talking about God changing covenants. And 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 yes, it was to Israel initially, but we because we are part of our inheritance is we've been grafted. The church, the Gentiles, were grafted into the promises that God made to Israel, we are beneficiaries of this covenant. And, and what it's, what's happening is he's quoting Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, in that time frame, was a very, very interesting period of time in Israel's history. He says, uh, this covenant that I'll make with Israel and Judah, this it was a divided kingdom. There had been a bloodless civil war, and there was Judah in the south, Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually part of the tribe of Benjamin's property, but it was all part of the southern kingdom. And then there were the northern ten tribes. The northern ten tribes had been carted off by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., off to a city called Nineveh. That, remember, that's the one that Jonah went, had to tell him in 40 days you're going to die, and the whole city repented and all that. At any rate, um, oh, I would love to rabbit trail on that. But... <laughs> The point is is that he he goes they go up there, well, the southern kingdom stayed intact for a while, uh and then, beginning in six o six well what happened is in in six twelve Nebuchadnezzar in, invaded Nineveh and and Babylon came to power. The Assyrians declined in power, and Babylon came to be the world dominating power, so they um Attacked Nineveh, they carted the people from Nineveh off, and then they focused on the southern kingdom. Uh, and and so in 612 they did one deportation, it took a bunch of people out of the the country, and then in 597 they did a second deportation, and things are looking really really bad because God keeps judging the southern kingdom for their total apostasy and their idolatry. They're in all kinds of weird worship, and 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 God said, you know, I've had enough. going to judge you guys. I'm going to take you off into captivity. This is when Israel was taken into 70 years of captivity. So between the second and third deportations, this prophet named Jeremiah is speaking for God. And he's saying, you know what, guys, and I'm paraphrasing, it ain't looking good for you. I've been telling you for 45 years that you need to repent and nobody is. So God's going to judge this thing. In the middle of that, he does this beautiful prophecy where the, where God through, or I, Jeremiah speaks for God, God speaks through him and says, behold, the days are coming. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the one that you've broken. And, and, and so the writer's reaching back and he's talking about that and there are some extremely relevant Parts of that, that that he brings to the Hebrew believers in the first century and that he brings to us as the church coming out of that. Wonderful study. I, I hope you come and, and that you're you're ready to go on it. If you want, study ahead. I don't encourage you to do that enough, but study ahead. You'll have a better grip on where we're at. And with that, let's pray. Father, oh gosh, I could just keep going, Lord. I, uh, these passages are so exciting for us to plumb and and to see the the work that you're